I'm really on this time, having left it off early and giving poor Pete kittens, probably about that. Okay, so Sermon on the Mount. We're in the Beatitudes. <clears throat> Wonderful, rich test, text. Really quite challenging. When I read the Beatitudes, if I'm honest, my heart doesn't jump up and down. I can't wait to be poor in spirit. I can't wait to mourn. If only I was really, really, really meek. Maybe these aren't postures that I naturally slot into. But the premise through this series here is that there is a place of great blessing. Is that what the Beatitudes say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Tremendous blessing. And I suppose... What I'm drawing out of this is that though there is a place of tremendous blessing, it isn't where you'd instinctively think. Certainly not what the world is teaching us. I would say that secularism is desperately trying to sell a very different set of values, a different set of priorities and principles. And what we have in actual fact is a conflict. There is more than one agenda in play right now. And when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking into a conflict. He was speaking into a first century conflict. He could equally, as we've agreed, be speaking into our context right now. Jesus' teaching was revolutionary. He came to spark a revolution, and his teaching, in many respects, is upside down. Certainly the flip of what the world is trying to teach us. I'll be honest, I'm really enjoying this study. I don't know who you are, but I am. I'm really enjoying seeing through this lens, this idea of, of the world being turned upside down and set back the right way up. And one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time teaching from the Sermon on the Mount is, is I think it's really crucial for balance. You know, we... We do tend, I think, in this modern age to focus on blessing. You know, I thank God for blessing. Thank God that his covenant is a covenant of blessing. But I'm not sure that's where we're supposed to be focusing. There's a danger, you see, that just like the world, if we get our doctrine a little bit wonky, there's a danger that we slip into a kind of self-gratification and self-satisfaction and an introversion where actually we spend too much time looking in at us and our problems. And we actually end up becoming the very thing that we fear. You know, we do unquestionably have the potential to be blessed. Personally, corporately. But not just to be blessed. We have the potential to be a river of blessing. And that, I think, is, is, is what we want, isn't it? You know, this, I believe, is what God has ordained. Going back into Abraham's promise, I will make you, more, I'll make you the father of many nations, more numerous than the stars in the heavens. If you look at the commission that Jesus gave, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You think about the incredible richness of promise that we have through Old Testament and New Testament. Then you think ultimately of a lavish city of gold in the New Jerusalem. God has ordained blessing for his people. But let's make sure that we know from Jesus' own mouth exactly what it is that produces the genuine blessing. And I believe that we have at our disposal the power to turn the world upside down and to set it back on its feet the right way up. So that's the heart and the spirit behind the series. Let's dive in we're, we've, we're doing two Beatitudes a week. We're on number five and six today. Number five is, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain, they shall receive mercy. Do you know, mercy is a beautiful thing. 
It's sweet. It's liberating. Actually, it's very, very powerful. You know, I'm sure the difference between that, that cold, clammy fear of condemnation versus the liberty that we get to enjoy as Christians because we know that God is on our side. You know, the context that Jesus spoke into in first century, the, the religious leaders, they emphasize justice. You know, if someone does something, this is the direct prescribed legal consequence of that action. They were really hot on that. They were really keen on their own shows, outward shows of piety. They paid great attention to perhaps almost trivial detail, but they had very little mercy. So even in this beatitude, we have actually have Jesus turning things again upside down. Religion turned upside down. It goes without saying, doesn't it, that the grace and mercy are major New Testament themes. And Jesus walked mercy in a groundbreaking, unprecedented way. One of my favorite stories, I love it, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And we know the story, the religious leaders are putting Jesus to the test, saying, okay, you're supposed to be this gracious, humble man. Are you just going to let this woman walk away in spite of everything that she's done? You say that you're a law man. You say that you've come to uphold you know, the Old Testament law. You know, here's a rock. They put it in his hand. They said, go on, then you throw it. And there they are, lined up, ready to fulfill the obligation of the law. And Jesus, placed in this impossible situation, says, as he's writing in the dust with his hands, he said those amazing words. He said, look around. As they drop their stones and they realize, Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They drop their stones. Jesus had his stone. I wonder if Jesus dropped his stone last or first. Because, of course, Jesus would have been in his right to throw the stone. He was the only one. But he dropped it to the ground and said, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wonderful example of how we should deal with sin, how we should deal with the sinner. And I think in many ways that was a symbolic turning point. We have that, that verse that we quote all the time, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. But then if you read the next verse, it says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it, but he came to save it. And so we have a situation as Jesus drops that stone where he's saying, I haven't come to condemn. I've come to be a source of, an outpouring of divine mercy. It's glorious. Let's establish a couple of definitions before we move on. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, we're familiar with those kind of definitions. So mercy is about sins forgiven. It's about the slate wiped clean. It's about our eternal punishment being erased. Grace is about new life. It's about a new heart. It's about a second chance. It's about God's input into your life, his love, his enablement, his strength that we receive. True mercy is a really challenging thing because true mercy involves letting people off the hook. True mercy involves releasing people from the obligation to repay. True mercy actually is about letting people save face publicly. All the things that Jesus willingly did for us. Instead of throwing the book at somebody, what you do actually is you release them and you kiss vindication goodbye. As I pondered this this week, I, it occurred to me, I, I think, you know, to be a person defined by mercy, and Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. You know, blessed are those who show mercy. In order for us to be defined by mercy, I think there are three crucial major revelations that we need to have. And the first one is, I have received mercy. The second one is, I 
Now trust mercy. And the third one is, I get to, I must release mercy. Number one, I have received mercy. God's mercy extended to us is immense and immeasurable. A couple of familiar verses. Lamentations 3, 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Ephesians 2, verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. If you remember the New Testament scene where, where the prostitute comes, it's in Luke 7, and she anoints Jesus' feet with this really lavish, expensive perfume. And then she proceeds to wipe it off with her tears and her hair. Do you remember that story? And as knocking on from that, when the people were looking on a little bit suspicious, what was this that was going on? Jesus told them a story. He's told them a story about two men who had their debts forgiven, cancelled. Because one of the men owes 500 denarii, and the other one owes 50 denarii. And then at the end of that, Jesus says, which one of those two do you think would love him more? And of course, the obvious answer is, you know, the one who's been forgiven so much more will love so much more. And there are repeated messages. There are many, many different examples of, and parables and stories told about mercy. I'm sure you can think of some. But there's a repeated message, and it goes something like this. When you have truly received mercy, when, when mercy has changed you, when mercy has become part of your life and of your experience and of your understanding, then that will reflect in you becoming merciful. It's the revelation that leads to the reality. Received mercy leads to outpoured mercy. I don't know about you, but I, I've, seen, I've seen really powerful life change in people who know how much they've been forgiven. You know, there's one particular man that I'm thinking of in Canada who, you know, his life had been a mess. He was on marriage number, I think it was three or four. He was an alcoholic. He, he'd been, he was a sex addict. Um, you know, he, and in his 50s, he became a Christian. And he was, you know, he was a strong-willed, you know, kind of charismatic kind of guy. But, you know, I remember the, the several conversations I had with him. He said, you know, I, I look back on the wasted years. I'm so grateful for the new chance that God has given me. He was well aware of how much he'd been forgiven. And he looked back with a real sense of, I've received mercy. I know, I know who I was. But thank God I now know who I am. That's one side. If we contrast that with the Pharisees, see the Pharisees, of course, Jesus had this long spat with the Pharisees, bless them. The Pharisees were so convinced by their own self-righteousness you know, what they were doing is continually digging into more and more, more detailed, nitpicking principles that they were walking in that nobody else was. And in fact, they had become full of a religious pride and superiority. We are right and you are wrong. As a result of that, they had become unmerciful. They'd become cold and unforgiving and judgmental. You know, that is a really ugly and dangerous place to be. We've talked, haven't we, about, about the deliberate sequencing through the Beatitudes. You know, there must be humility. It starts with brokenness. You know, there, there has to be mourning over sin. There has to be meekness, you know, as we talked about last week, that power week before, that power under control submitted to the king. There has to be a hunger and a thirst within us for righteousness. Because when we allow God to do that inside of us, these things open the way, open our hearts for the way, the kingdom way of mercy. 
So number one, I have to receive mercy. I have to recognize that I have, to, that I have received mercy. I need to have mercy fully revealed to me. But secondly, I can trust mercy. It's a great revelation. I can trust mercy. I think what I'm trying to say here is, is God's principles work and we must buy into that fully. I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, we, we have to be convinced, I think, that God's way is better. The way of mercy. And we have to be prepared to pay a price because mercy hurts. See, when you've been wronged, everything within you screams for justice, screams for vengeance, screams for repayment, it screams for self-justification. And at that point, the thought of mercy so offends your flesh that it's often the very last thing on your mind. You know, mercy hurts because retribution is deserved. They deserve it. But the thing is that mercy doesn't give what is deserved. So let me ask a question. The question is, whose way is better? This is what God says. And of course, this is kind of an opening of the door, the introduction, and he really, through the sermon on that, really presses into this whole concept, this whole idea. God says, you must extend a hand of mercy. Your job is just to forgive. And you're to forgive repeatedly. You're to forgive by faith. Hey, you might even need to turn the other cheek. He says, you do that, and then you trust me. You trust that I am sovereign. You can trust that I am at work. You can trust that I have your best interests at heart. You have to trust that ultimately, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is not yours to give. Vengeance is mine. You know, you can operate out of mercy when you know who's on the throne. If you are on the throne, then you will administer your justice. You will do it your way uh, with your results. But if God is on the throne, you will trust him to administer his way. You know, his way may look different. It may take longer. It may, well, even not work out quite the way that you would hope. But let me ask you this. Who would you rather have fixing your problems? You or God? We could, we could probably part right there, couldn't we? <laughs> kind of got me thinking, jovially. In your world, who has their finger on the red button? I'm picturing the president, right, with the nuclear codes. He's the one with the finger on the button. He gets to decide. In your world, who gets to decide? You know, in, your, in the way you, you conduct yourself, are you prepared to turn the other cheek? Are you, are you prepared to release God to act on your behalf or are you swinging from the hip? It's a good question. See, here's the thing. As soon as you enact mercy, it moves from your hands to the Lord's hands. And again, whose outcome actually would you prefer? You know, without this without this stake-in-the-ground decision. I am going to trust that God knows best. That if God tells me to pray for the person persecuting me, if God tells me to bless the person who's cursing me, hey, if God even tells me to love my enemy, if God tells me to turn my cheek, if God tells me to carry it the extra mile, am I prepared to accept that? Am I prepared to put a stake in the ground that says, okay, I trust that you, Lord, can make this work and you can make it work a lot better than I can. If you can't do that, you'll have great difficulty stepping past the pain barrier. Because the, the trouble is, you see, revenge instincts. 
the longing inside of us for compensation and for justification, which is a natural thing to want and long for, those things block the flow of mercy. Mercy is unnatural. Actually, mercy crosses over into the realm of the supernatural. And essentially, you have two choices. You can choose to follow nature and seek revenge. Or you can choose to cross over into the supernatural and show mercy. So number two is, I can trust mercy. Number three is, I must release mercy. You see, the mercy that we release actually is a supernatural force. And the reason it's a supernatural force is because we have the merciful one living on the inside of us. A verse that I was taught early and I remember is Romans 5.5, which talks about how God has sh- how the love of God, the King James, is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. Modern verse talks about how God has filled our hearts with his love. Actually, he's filled our hearts with himself and he is love. So we have the lover inside of us. We have the compassionate one inside of us. We have the merciful one inside of us. And he is desperate to get out and to do what he does. The question, I suppose, becomes, and how do you release that if that is within you, if it is a supernatural force, how do you release that when your flesh is screaming? And the answer is you have to learn to ignore that voice. And you have to learn to listen increasingly and yield to the voice of the Spirit, the merciful one on the inside of you. The Holy Spirit's contribution is to remind you what the Word says. So when you face yourself in that painful position where you're pondering the consequences of a scenario, the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you, blessed are you when you show mercy, for then you will receive mercy. His job is to remind us of the principles of the word. His job is to help us to think like Jesus. And here is Jesus giving us a thinking revolution, turning things upside down, throwing away, cutting down, destroying worldly principles, saying, in my kingdom, this is how we act. This is how we think. Holy Spirit's job, his contribution is to help us to think like Jesus. And ultimately, to lead us along a path into, I suppose, the fruit of mercy, which will be a freedom, it'll be a peace, and ultimately, it'll be a Christ-likeness that we can never attain in our own strength. When your flesh is screaming, we have to learn to ignore that voice and to listen to the voice of the Spirit. You know, we, we must stop defaulting to emotional explosions. You like that? When you get bad news, when someone attacks you, when someone criticizes you, what do you do? Does it just explode? It's dangerous if we default to that. Each one of us has got an instinct for self-preservation. Each one of us has been taught over and over again that we have worldly taught rights. They've got no right to treat you like that. Why don't you stand up and defend yourself? We have to learn to turn off that tap and we have to switch on the other one. And the other tap is the spirit on the inside. Grace and love. Romans 5.5, mercy, compassion on the inside. You know, this, this is good news for me. This changes things completely. You know, Mercy is never intended to be in my strength. Mercy isn't something that I have to muster up out of my intellect. Actually, what I have to do is I have to yield. I have to yield to the power of the Spirit on the inside of me. I love Luke 24, verse 49. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until essentially the Holy Spirit comes and you become clothed with power. Well, this is power. Mercy is an incredibly powerful force and he has clothed us, as it were, with that power. 
And the reward? The reward of showing mercy? For they will be shown mercy. You see, if you have a merciful heart, if you have a heart that is soft and that is open and that is submitted, if you have that merciful heart, then God can deal with you completely differently from someone who has a difficult, stubborn, judgmental, critical, unforgiving heart. See, God is then able to deal with you gently and mercifully because he knows that you are tender and you are responsive. James 4 verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if we have that merciful heart, God doesn't need to deal with us forcibly. God can get through to you, God can get into you what he needs by being merciful. Otherwise, you're a candidate for discipline. You know, there's a clear principle, isn't there? Judge others and you will be judged. A few verses down in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge others and you will be judged. There is a spiritual law of sowing and reaping and things come full circle. Luke 6, 38, give and it will come back to you. Press down, shaken together, running together. The measure that you meted out, it will be returned to you. If you want to pour out judgment, guess what? You're going to reap judgment. Good news is if we will sow mercy, we will reap mercy. And I don't know about you, I need mercy. So Matthew 5 verse 7, Blessed are you when you show mercy, for you will receive mercy. The mercy that you show will follow you. That's a wonderful thing. Psalm 23 verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mercy, grace, love, loving kindness, God's presence will follow you. That is the culmination of that amazing psalm, Psalm 23. And the good news is that when you operate out of mercy, everyone gets blessed. One of the best stories in my book of mercy in in the Bible is Joseph. And and that wonderful scene where Joseph forgives his brothers. I don't know whether I'd have been able to do that. He was able to forgive his brothers. And look what happened. He was blessed. His brothers were blessed. The nation was blessed. His father was blessed. Pharaoh was blessed. Everyone got blessed. When you show mercy, you enter into a new kind of relationship with God. A new level. A new maturity of relationship. You open the floodgates to whole new degrees of blessing in your life. And I think what Jesus is doing right at the start in these Beatitudes, he's naming it. He's spelling it out. Highlights. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then he's going to go through in the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He's going to walk through what this looks like. How many times do we have to forgive Jesus? Seven? No. 77. 70 times seven. You know, what do I do when someone smacks me then? Well, maybe you need to turn the other cheek. And he's going to unfold all of that. So beatitude number five is blessed are the merciful. Number six is blessed are the pure in heart. And it follows directly on. And what I want to press into today, I could, I could preach on pure in heart forever. Don't think that would be popular. But what I want to do is to, to concentrate on how it follows on for mercy. And it's quite significant. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Anyone around here apart from me who wants to see God? We'll talk about what that means in a minute. I don't think there's any confusion with what this is all about. I think this is fairly obvious. In the past, I've set up illustrations here at the front on a table, having a a jug of water, and we've poured in Coke and pepper and salt and sugar and vinegar and orange juice, and you get this horrible mess. You know, and talking about how all of those things can be the baggage and the nonsense and the lies and the filth that the world, the enemy, are trying desperately to pollute us with. And then in in my illustration, it takes a lot of water. Here's the pure water of God's word. Life-giving, transforming, cleansing, sanctifying. As you pour it in slowly but surely, it starts to dilute 
what's in that jug, and eventually that jug becomes clear, and what flows out of that jug is beautiful, pure, crystal clear, clean water. Wonderful. There is tremendous blessing in purity of heart. I have a dream, my dream, I haven't attained it yet, <laughs> by a long way. My dream is of purity coursing through my veins so that in me there is no defilement, there is no pollution, there is no junk. And of course, if what is inside of you is pure, then what comes out of you will be pure. And if I want to be a fount of positivity, if I want to be a fount of health, if I want to be a, a fount of life, if I want to be a fount of blessing, then I have to make sure that what is inside of me is pure. Psalm 51 verse 10. David, caught in the act by Nathan, says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. In one of Job's wonderful debates, backwards and forwards, he makes a statement. He says, who can bring what is pure from the impure? Answer, no one. Not possible. And Paul's call in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 6, beginning of verse 7, really strong, challenging verse. Verse 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart. You know, the heart is used in various contexts in the Bible. Sometimes it means the blood pump. But generally speaking, when it talks about the heart, it's talking about the real you. It's talking about your inner life, your soul and spirit, your personality and character, your thoughts and attitudes talking about the bits that people can see. It's also talking about the bits that they cannot see. And it's a simple principle. Our hearts will reflect what we've been filled with. They'll reflect what we have been fed. They will reflect what, over the course of time, we have focused on. And here's the bit. Mercy comes before pure in heart. Because if you have the mercy gate in place, it will stop all sorts of junk setting up residence and defiling your heart. There's a tweet that I read a couple of weeks ago. It's a Nelson Mandela quote, which gives it real teeth. He says, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. And boy, was he ever one to know about that. Resentment is like drinking poison. It is. Resentment is like drinking poison. All sorts of things can defile your heart. There are lots of different toxins and poisons, if, if, as it were. A, a little list here. It's an ugly list. Resentment. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Envy. Frustration and anger self-pity, lust in its many forms, greed in its many forms. And if we will let those things in, they are poisons. And guess what? Reading a really good book at the moment called Soul Detox by Craig Rochelle. I recommend it. It'll be on my list for next, recommended list for next year. And he goes through each of these different toxins and poisons and tells you how you can detox yourself from those things, from the anger from the envy, from the bitterness that can take hold. So the key is, have you got this mercy gate in place? Because if the mercy gate is in place, if you act in mercy, then you don't allow the judgmental attitude. You don't allow the criticism. You don't allow the offence to, to take root. You don't allow the resentment and bitterness to grow because the gate, the mercy gate, provides a blockage to that. It comes down, I think, to what do you fill your heart with intentionally and what do you allow to fill your heart unintentionally? And I think there's a little bit of both going on. Let's talk, number one, what do you fill your heart with intentionally 
straightforward really. Watch your feed grow stronger and watch your starve dies. So the question for each of us is, are we filling ourselves with the pure or impure? Are we filling ourselves with holy or profane? With natural or spiritual? With worldly or godly? And I think at least to some extent, we can control that. And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus says, essentially, it's better to cut off your hand. It's better to pluck out your eye than for you to allow them to lead you in to what is sinful, what is impure, what is unholy. So the question becomes, then, what, what is it that you meditate? What is it that we fill our eyes with? What is it that we give attention to? What is it that we focus on and prioritize? A couple of verses, Philippians 4, verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. It's the end of a fantastic little passage. Fix your thoughts. Fix your thought. Intentional. Fix your thought on what is true. Truth versus lies. What is honorable? What is right? What is pure? What is lovely and admirable? Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. It's a simple principle. John 7, verse 37, 38. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And then out of his belly, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. If we want out of our hearts to flow rivers of life-giving, refreshing water, then we need to come to him and we need to drink. We need to drink what he provides, not the nonsense the other stuff. Another favourite verse I quote often, Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, Above all else, guard your heart. I'm going to mix a few versions here. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And the wellspring of your life will reflect what you've fed into it, and it will reflect how carefully you have guarded it. And then we look at what, what we've allowed to fill our hearts, perhaps unintentionally. You know, there are no natural filters on our minds. We see it, and then we start to process it. And so we have to guard it. We have to guard our hearts, and we have to do so fiercely. Don't let poison in. Don't let bad attitudes develop. Don't let resentment boil. Don't let frustrations fester. As Paul said, take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ because you have to guard your heart. Picture a fierce guard dog on the outside of my heart saying, no, I'm not receiving you and I'm not letting you in. And the way we cut so many of these things off at source is by doing it God's way. Here's the mercy gate. If I will yield to the mercy inside of me, if I will act in a merciful fashion, then I close the door. By doing that, I close the door to so much other defilement from getting in. And the reward for pure in heart says they will see God. They will experience the presence of God, hear the voice of God, feel the power of God, see the hand of God. In the message it says, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. And Jesus is promising that the pure in heart will see God at work in a very real, obvious and powerful sense here below on the earth. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? It says, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And right back there in the Psalms, God is connecting purity of heart with his presence. And boy, do we need his presence. Hebrews 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one 
will see the Lord. No one, not just you, no one will see the Lord. Flip that round. The pure in heart will see God. Joshua 3 verse 5. Joshua told the people, purify yourselves. This is before the walls came tumbling down. Purify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. There's a sequence. First you purify yourself and then God can do great wonders among you. Coming back to my R.T. Candle premises, the, the Beatitudes contain for us the model of what spirit-filled living looks like. This, you see, what we're reading and studying here, this is how we walk with God. This is how we get to live with him close at hand. This is what we have to do if we want to be able to see him. Kendall talks about about kingdom living with the ungrieved spirit. And for that, purity of heart is a key piece. You see, the impure and the profane and the unholy offend God. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Read Ephesians chapter 4. Don't have time, unfortunately. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit and causes him to take a step back. We don't want that. We don't want to grieve him in any way. We want to walk as close to him and with him as we possibly can. And I personally long to be in the place where nothing I do grieves him at all. It's my dream. Where nothing jeopardizes that relationship, that closeness. Where nothing that I do in any way is putting up walls or hindering him from being able to do what it does, which I guess in essence is to bless. So as I wrap this up, today's title is Transformation Works from the Inside Out, Not from the Outside In. Okay, so number four, whatever, my upside down principles. See, what the world teaches is that if you can change your external factors, if you can change your circumstances, if you can become more beautiful, if you can become fitter and healthier, maybe richer, if only you could have that new job, new salary, new home, new sexual partner, new wardrobe, new toy, even new washing powder. If you can have that, I'm sorry, mocking TV advertising there, you know what I mean. If we can have that, if we can change those things, then we can find happiness then we can find contentment and peace. But the lie is, and we mustn't buy into, is that outward change affects inward transformation. It just doesn't work. God's kingdom works upside down. Transformation works on the inside out. See, it doesn't go like this. It's not, if only I could do God do, see God do something spectacular on the outside, then in response to that, I'd have the motivation then to become pure in heart. It doesn't work like that. It's if I become pure in heart, then I'll see God do something spectacular. Even if it may not be quite what you expect. Upside down. It's not, if only I could get that problem fixed. If only I could get justice done in that relationship. If only I could see that person get zapped. Then I'd find inner wholeness. Actually, it's the flip. If I can find that inner wholeness, if I can learn to let go and stop fighting, resisting God, if I can learn how to release what the Holy Spirit has invested in me, if I find that inner wholeness, then... I release God, actually, to fix and to do and to zap. Although, again, it might look a little different to how we imagine. The thing is, change on the inside produces the transformation that I seek. Therefore, that is what we should be focusing on. If we spent more time investing in our friendship with God, 
and less time trying desperately, in vain probably, to fix our circumstances, maybe then we would find the true blessing that God has promised in Matthew chapter 5. So let me just leave you with a challenge to tie in with both of those Beatitudes. And then Mark and Carol will come up and we'll just spend a little bit of time with our hearts still, asking questions. I know this wasn't a whoopee do, jump up and down, get excited message, but actually I think there's a richness in this. If we grab a hold of this, if we allow God to work this into us, we can see a significant change in our lives. So challenge number one is, are you habitually merciful? Have you accepted that God's way is better? Has your heart been changed by his mercy? And as a result, you've become habitually merciful. Doesn't matter how much provocation, doesn't matter what the circumstance, you've become convinced that as God has poured out his mercy on me, I now have an obligation to do the same. You know, we are the servant who is forgiven 500 pence. We, we are, sorry, we are the servant who is forgiven 5,000 million pounds in that parable. What right have we got to inflict judgment on the one who owes us 500 pence? Another of the parables. Are you habitually merciful? Are there situations, I'd like you to take this to the Lord, are there situations that you are involved in right now in which you need to respond differently? Number one. And number two is, are you pure in heart? And the answer hopefully is not yet, but closer than I was, purer than I was. Questions. What are you allowing to sneak in? Second question. What are you intentionally feeding in? For good or for bad? And then off, spinning off both of those. What can you do today to change that? Okay, why don't we, why don't we stand? I'm going to pray. And then simply, I'm just going to invite you to take that to the Lord. If you'd like to receive any form of prayer ministry this morning, our team will be out here at the front. They'll willingly, gladly pray for you for anything, whether it's related to what's been stirred by God's word today or something completely different, something tied in with the circumstance of life. If you want prayer for healing, whatever it is, please come forward. We'd love to pray for you. If there's anything that God has been stirring in your heart, I know what you think. Oh, I wish he'd shut up. Why do you keep banging on that nerve? Right? Well, hopefully that's not me. If it is me, I apologize. Hopefully, that, if that is the Holy Spirit, just, just nudging, just tweaking, I'd encourage you to respond to that. There's an anointing on your response to what he has spoken, your obedience to what he's called for. And if you have a sense that God is stirring you today to do something, change something, then I'd encourage you to respond to that. You can do that right where you are in your seat, but if you'd like to, come to the front this side. You can just kind of get on your knees, do business with God. No one will pray for you this side, but you can pray those prayers that need to be prayed. Is that okay? I'll pray. The kids will be out in about 20 past because we kept them in late doing communion, so they're fine. They're having a great time up there. It's quiet. I mean, it's got to be good, right? Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, this is really challenging to us because mercy is not something that comes naturally to us. We want to be proved to be right. We want people to repay when they steal. We want people to suffer even possibly when they hurt us. But Lord, you've come to show us that there is a better way. It's a challenging way. It's a different way. But Lord, it's so much better. And part of the good news is, Lord, is this is not about us stirring it up. It's not about us trying to squeeze ourselves into higher degrees of self-righteousness. Pharisees tried that and they failed. It's about receiving your mercy. It's about trusting that mercy. And then it's about allowing the merciful one on the inside to come out. Quieting the flesh. Stilling our own ego. And say, God, come and be God in this situation. 
Come and be God. And then, Lord, when we look at the state of our own hearts, the psalmist prayed, Lord, that you'd search me, that you'd examine me. Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to do that today and say, Lord, what is it that we need to change? Have we allowed poison to get in? If we have, Lord, then we offer it to you today. And may the cleansing water of your word we've heard just cleanse that. What do we need to do? Why do we need to start feeding into ourselves so that we can become pure in heart? Because we need to see God. We need to see God and we need to receive mercy, Lord. Of that we are convinced. And Lord, we want to see you move. We want to walk in your presence. We want to know and experience your power and see your hand. God, we invite you today to come and do the work deep inside of us that you need to do to make that the case. So Holy Spirit, we give you the next five, ten minutes or so and we just say, would you stir in our hearts? Would you whisper in our ears? Would you tweak what needs to be tweaked? Would you lead us in the right response? And would you then come and do what only you can do? We might have tried and failed to deal with things for years with your breath, with your fire. You can burn it out of us in a heartbeat. So Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts and we give you these minutes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I said, if you'd like ministry this side, please come forward. If you'd like to business with God, please uh, be my guest. We'll worship for a few more minutes, then we'll close. We'll have coffee and chat and so on. Je 